I realized quite early on in my IVF journey that I was going to have to tell my team because I got, you know, the first couple of times it happened and I got a phone call, you know, I'd literally half an hour earlier said to somebody, I'm going to be able to review that document. I'm here all afternoon. I'll be able to review the document. It's not a problem. And then I got a phone call to say, you need to be at the clinic in the next hour so that we can redo bloods. Welcome to the Big Careers Small Children podcast. I'm Felina Hefti, and I believe absolutely no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, amazing people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children. And this can lead to gender inequality at the top and the same stale, mostly male, middle-class people leading our organizations and our world. I want us all together to change this. And in fact, I hope that many of you listening to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible, where you make decisions that make our world better. Beyond the podcast, I'm also the CEO and founder of the award-winning Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. If you want support from amazing like-minded peers, if you want to join our free events, we've got one coming up about returning to work in January, or if you want to find out about our world-class career development program, our fellowship programs for parents, then sign up to our monthly newsletter on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. My guest today is the inspirational Joanna Santinon. We discuss her IVF and fertility journey and how she combined that with an extremely demanding career as a partner. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Adjana, to the podcast. Let's start with you introducing who you are, what you do for work, and who is in your family. Okay. Hi, Verena. Thank you for having me here today. I, for 25 years, was a partner at EY. I retired a year ago, so December 21. And so I'm now running a plural career. Um, I mentor a number of entrepreneurs. I've got two non-exec roles at investment trusts, and I'm the a trustee at the Center for Entrepreneurs. So a very different career than the one I had for a long time. My family, I am married. I've been with the same guy for about 20 years. Um, I have two children, and they are 10 and 12. And we are asking all our guests this. Can you tell me one thing that you used to believe about combining a big career with young children that you don't believe anymore? I used to believe a long time ago that people that had a big career and had young children somehow became miraculously more efficient. And I'm not convinced about that anymore. I just think you pedal really hard. But I think I'd watched a lot of people with children and thought, they all just seem to do it so well. <laughs> and then you have yourself and feel, I don't feel I'm doing it as well as they were all doing it. So It's really funny to hear you say that because I saw you when you were still at EY and you spoke at one of our events in House of Commons. And I, I just thought, oh my goodness, like this woman clearly has everything together. <laughs> and it's just so funny how <laughs> it clearly doesn't feel like that on the inside. No, I think that's right. I think it's just the, there's the external and the internal, the, what it looks like versus what it feels. And I think you realise that pretty quickly once you've got them. You came onto the podcast because you and I had a really interesting conversation about your fertility journey before you became a mentor um, for, for us at Leaders Plus. Do you remember the moment when you realised that it was going to be a different type of journey to get to a family? 
I think the answer to that's probably not really. It wasn't, I don't think, I think you're on a path. So I met my husband when I was already 35 plus. We didn't get married until I was 30, nearly 38. And very quickly, we went to see just the local GP to say, you know, sort of haven't been doing anything particular, but nothing's happening. I have to be really honest and say the local GP was pretty hopeless at that point in time, which was slightly alarming and, and would unnerve me about, you know, the where we should go. Because the response was kind of, you know, well, it's only been a year. And I was sort of, well, that'd be great if I was 25, but I'm not. And a year's quite a long time. I haven't, I know I haven't got as long left. And as it turned out, I had a lot, le- a lot less time left than I would have liked to have thought. And I think it's difficult because until you're trying, you just don't really look into fertility and you don't understand where the fertility cliffs are, where the drop-offs start to happen. So I think to start with, it was very much a, you know, it's a path. So you just go along thinking it's all going to get sorted out one way or another. And then each visit that you have is just a more creeping realization that this isn't as straightforward as we thought it was going to be. And I think we finally, we came to a point where we were at a clinic and, you know, the chap said, this is the reality. We can start a lot of tests, but if we do all of those tests, you know, what, what is the, the outcome is either going to be, we can't find anything, therefore you could carry on or you might as well start IVF or we might find something, but you're still probably going to start IVF. And at the age you're at, and this is interesting because very different from the GP's response, you know, at the age you're at, you know, actually why put another few months in doing tests, which could be inconclusive in any event, let's just get on with doing IVF. And so there wasn't, I suppose, you know, that was the moment at which IVF became a reality, but I think it was more of a path that we were on that said, this is what is going to have to happen in order for for you to have children or to have a hope of having children, I guess, would be more of the reality. And what did you assume about what the journey, the IVF journey would be like? And what was it really like in reality? Do you know what? I don't think I assumed anything. And I have learned, actually, that I am, in in times of what could be potentially true stress, I can look back in hindsight and think, you know what, I don't really think about it. I think I think there's a part of me that uses my subconscious shuts my brain down to go, don't think about that, just go do. You know, it's a thing that has to be done. Rationalize does it have to be done? And if it has to be done, just go do. And there are some, you know, completely different examples of the same thing. You know, I jumped out of an airplane when I was 32 in Australia and only halfway down, having jumped out of the plane, did the guy start to say to me, you know, so when we land, this is what we're going to do. And I reflected on it afterwards because it's so not like me in day-to-day life. In day-to-day life, I like to plan. I like to think it through. I like to know what's going to happen. And I've always thought back to that jumping out of the plane and thought, how did I get halfway down in midair before I actually thought, what am I going to do when I land? Because that's the hardest bit, right? And the most important bit. And the most important bit. You know, that's where it's all going to go horribly wrong if you don't get it right. And so I know that there is a bit of my brain that when I'm in intense stress, just shuts off and just kind of just goes with the flow, which is really strange. And actually, it's exactly, it was exactly the same when I reflect back on the IVF. I didn't think about it. 
I knew what I had to do. I distinctly remember, and I'm sorry, but this could be, I'll try to make this not graphic. Um, but the very first appointment that I had at the clinic to do IVF, I went in for a scan and I went in and the guy was there and I just clearly hadn't thought about it. And I looked at him and he kind of got the scanning equipment out and it's an internal scan and it's an ultrasound. And it just hadn't really entered my head what that meant. And I kind of looked at it all and thought, oh, my immediate reaction was, I, I, I'm just going to walk out of here. I can't do that. I can't do that. And then you do that thing in you where you just stop yourself and in your head, you kind of go, right, I'm either here or I'm not. And if I'm here and this is what I want to do, I am just going to have to get through it and I will just do it. But I think it's just interesting. I just hadn't really considered nuts and bolts and, and, you know, and, and graphically ins and outs. Hadn't considered that until I literally was presented with it and thought, oh, no. <laughs> so for those of our listeners who haven't had that joyful experience, just to say it's basically like a massive very long plastic phallus equivalent yes that is pretty much exactly what it is and i really have not thought that through until it was presented and it yeah but you know then actually there are some upsides to that because when you know there are as you know i've got two children so there are the outcome of all of this ended up being quite good and when i was going through pregnancy honestly that's a breeze if you've done ivf because you mm. know you've got all these people kind of going i'm a bit nervous about this bit and that bit and i'm like <laughs> Been there, done that. We've recurred all those bases before you've got to the pregnancy. So the pregnancy is a dream in comparison to other people, I think, because you've just done the more tricky bits earlier on. And for people who are about to embark on it and aren't sure what to expect, what would you personally would have liked to know about it that you didn't at the time? I think, I don't know whether I'd have liked to have known, actually. I think maybe it might have disheartened me earlier on. I think the statistics are far more scary than people imagine and far more aware now than I was then of how many people enter IVF and never actually have a child and I think it's one of the things that worries me a lot I think I think there are a lot of young women in careers who not that they're thinking IVF is a backup they genuinely believe that they will have children of their own in time but actually, IVF is not necessarily the backup that lots of people see it as being. Lots and lots of people enter IVF programs and never have a baby. And I didn't know that. And perhaps that's a good thing, I think. Maybe it is a good thing. So it's not the answer to the question that you asked. But it, a thing I did not realise was that I did not realise how, just how low the statistics are for IVF. Because you only hear the good side. Nobody talks about the fact that they had three rounds of IVF and stopped, or they had a round of IVF and had to stop. And I think people make an assumption as well. And, and some of it is definitely a financial issue, which is people can't afford to have more than one or two rounds of IVF. And one or two rounds of IVF is just not enough to get them where they need to be. And I would hope it's better now than it was when I went through the process, because I think like all these things, it's still a relatively new process and everybody is learning. It's healthcare, right? And we're all unique and individual. So what works for one won't necessarily work for you. And once or twice is not necessarily enough to learn what would work for you. And that's why people don't always get to have a baby. So I think I was really shocked when I realized just how low the, the statistics were for people having babies. And what do you think about organizations like Google, advertising, egg freezing, etc.? 
there's almost a different question in there because as somebody who has been through IVF, I would have loved with the glorious benefit of hindsight to have had eggs frozen from when I was 25 because they're the eggs that you want to be using, right? You don't want to be using eggs that are 41 and 42 or 38 or 39. They are knackered eggs, right? You know, we've had these eggs for a long time inside us. They are knackered. They are at the end of their life and they may or may not do the job that you need them to do. So I think from that perspective, you know, great. Worries me a little bit about it is the fact that I think what should be being sorted out is the fact that I think women and people should be encouraged to have, you know, allowed to have the families that they want at the time that they want to have them. And I worry that the Google egg freezing is a bit of a kind of, we'd rather that you're focused on your career till this point in time, because this is what a career path at Google looks like. And only by this time does it make sense for you to go and have children. And that to me seems the wrong way to go about solving a problem. It's better to solve the problem at the source rather than put it, it's more like a sticking plaster than it is a kind of a source problem, which is how do we make a career path that works for women, regardless of whether or not they have children go on maternity leave or not. Just this morning, I had a podcast conversation with someone who said for her, it was much easier to take maternity leave when she was older and have that time out when she was already senior as opposed to taking it out when you're junior and then coming back and progressing again it's just so annoying not to be too negative but actually it is really annoying that it's easier to have children later from a career perspective yeah and, and that's not and I think that's something that you know probably I'm once upon a time I've been quite keen to say now I'm less keen because I you know it is what it is But I think a lot of people made an assumption, a lot of people where I was in terms of work made an assumption that I had chosen to have children late. That's not the case. I wasn't married. I didn't think about having children on my own. That was a distinct choice. By the time I found somebody and by the time we'd got married, it was just later. It It wasn't a choice. But I would absolutely concur with your earlier guess that that's that for sure is the case. It was, I recognize always that it was easier for me to manage what I was doing as a partner than it would have been to manage at different points in my career. You know, particularly as a senior manager, as a senior manager, when you are really going hell for leather to make partner, having the upheaval of IVF would be very difficult. And I did IVF at a clinic that is very intensive. Not all clinics are the same, but there were some days when I would have to go twice a day for bloods. So fitting that in, you know, the beginning of the day is fine, but if they then phoned you up halfway through the day and said, your bloods are not great, you need to come back, that was tricky. Even as a partner, so for people who don't know how these things work, partner, you are really responsible, aren't you, for, well, clients will expect you, I presume, to get back to them. So how Practically, did you make that work in in a culture where you are expected to be very responsive? So I think I said the very first appointment was always first first thing of the day. So you know that might be half half past seven in the morning. So that kind of really was easy to manage. You just had to make sure you were somewhere, and then you went to the office afterwards. If you got the call up to go again, then I would just you know I think we might talk later about who didn't didn't know. I realised quite early on in my IVF journey that I was going to have to tell my team. Because I got, you know, the first 
couple of times it happened and I got a phone call. You know, I'd literally half an hour earlier said to somebody, I'm going to be able to review that document. I'm here all afternoon. I'll be able to review the document. It's not a problem. And then I got a phone call to say, you need to be at the clinic in the next hour so that we can redo bloods. And I was thinking, well, they're going to wonder what's going on. You know, they're going to really think what's strange. And, and I had I had not long actually nearly left EY. I'd resigned and nearly gone to work somewhere else. And my team had known that. And I thought they're literally going to think I'm, you know, interviewing for more jobs if I keep, if I disappear again. And I don't want that. I don't want to be unsettle them and I need them to be able to support me actually. Because at the end of the day, we worked in a small team. There were about 12 to 15 of us working in that team. And so the other senior people in the team, the senior managers and above, I was very clear with them. This is what's happening. This is why it's happening. And now and again, it's going to require me to disappear unexpectedly. But hopefully, I mean, it is only now, it was only now and again. It wasn't every day. It wasn't every day, Verena. But I had to be transparent with my team because I think otherwise it wouldn't have been doable. You know, mm. the, the level of uncertainty that they would have had over what was actually happening with me would have brought stress on me as well. And you mentioned the word upheaval earlier. Mm. Um, a lot of people going through it say that there's been an emotional upheaval um, because you're also going through quite a lot of hormones being shot into you. Yeah. Did you experience that emotional upheaval or did you just compartmentalize it? Really, honestly, for me, I don't think that the, I mean, I don't know. You never know. But I don't think the hormones had quite the same impact on me as they might do on other people. That might be because I'm six foot tall and so there's you know, there's more of me to take them and they just didn't quite impact me. I think what does what does impact you and what absolutely was a challenge for me, and we talked earlier about planning and you know thinking things through and, and knowing what's happening. I think the inability to plan anything really impacted me quite a lot. So, you know, every time you're going for IVF, you start a new cycle, you go through the drugs piece, you have the eggs removed, they then fertilize them, you're kind of on phone calls waiting to hear whether or not they've taken, how many have taken, you go back to have them put back in, you're then waiting for two, for two weeks to have the results and to, you know, to see whether or not they've taken and have you got pregnant and and in that all that time, you kind of can't really plan in the way that I had always planned my life before. So I had always planned, you know, I'd had I had big holidays planned, you know. So I always would know, you know, this year I'm going to India and South Africa and you know, and I might have a beach holiday somewhere in the middle. And and you couldn't do that because you always were hoping that this time it would work and therefore I would be pregnant. Because it was very real, you know, you actually, you genuinely, and I never thought about it. I know some people do. I tried very hard to not think about the fact that, that, that it was, I'm pregnant. Because for me, I was never pregnant until I had a positive test, even though technically, you know, I have had a fertilized egg put back in, I'm carrying it. And you have to do all the things as though you're pregnant. You have to, I, emotionally, it's a very strange place to be in terms of how you keep that balance because I could never get excited about that phase. I never thought I was pregnant at that point in time. So, but I think the lack of planning and, and even like it was silly things, Farina, like, you know, buying clothes. I mean, I stopped buying new clothes because I would think, well, you know, I need a new suit for work, but actually there's no point buying that suit because that's a really expensive suit. And 
hopefully I won't be fitting in it for very, very soon. And the, but that for me, and we haven't gone there yet, but to put this in context for the people listening, for my first child, I had 10 rounds of IVF. So this went on for a long time. And that level of uncertainty, that's probably one of the things that I found most difficult to deal with. And not that that was an upheaval in itself, but just never feeling like I could plan the next six months because always I knew that on this date I was going to be starting a new, or around about this day, I was going to be starting a new cycle. And if that one worked, then this is where I'd be. And that was hard. I can imagine. How did you still perform at work with your role being very strategic, very long-term focused, and at the same time, obviously, this very short-term rating game? Yeah, and, and this is where it's really, really difficult because there's a lot of compartmentalization went in for me to allow me to do what I did. So obviously, the senior team at work knew, my bosses, my immediate team knew, and my immediate bosses knew. So before I even embarked on IVF, I had a conversation with them that said, you need to know this is where I'm going to be. I alluded earlier to the fact that I nearly left. So it was very much a part of the conversation around what was happening with me and what that might mean for me. But I think from a work perspective, actually, as much as I didn't buy new clothes and I couldn't plan a holiday, you just got on and did your job. So I was in M&A tax, which I guess by its nature is a is a little bit more short term and project based anyway. So you just got on and did the project. You know, I do the project. And yes, it's yes, it's pressured and yes, it's stressed and sometimes it's late nights, but you just get on and do it. And so that was fine. It didn't get in the way in that respect at all, actually. I didn't feel like it, it got in the way at all. Thank you for sharing that. And it just shows that it is so different for everybody. And the fact that you were able to compartmentalize it really well and continue to perform really well also just shows that not everyone is experiencing it the same way. And that is fantastic. Did you get any advice that was genuinely useful to you before you started the journey or even while you were on the journey? I'll do the advice bit first. And the advice bit, I'm going to, I'm going to pick on something that was, that was on the journey because I actually now use it quite a lot. And I think sometimes people don't understand it unless you hear it in context, which is the IVF. So every time you have the eggs put back, so they are they are now, they're not just eggs, they are now fertilized embryos. They are potentially your child. And every time they would go back in, there'd be this whole kind of, you know, what should you and shouldn't you do? And I would say, you know, what should I or shouldn't I do? And likewise, when you when I actually finally got pregnant, you know, what should I or shouldn't I do? You're very precious about it. Having tried for 10 rounds of IVF, I was incredibly concerned to not do anything that would cause a problem. And But the advice that I got given then, and I actually think about it quite a lot now and, and contextualize it into wherever I'm dealing with, is don't do anything that if you were to lose this, you would regret it. And I think that is great advice to think about, well, okay, what's, what is the thing that I don't want? What is, the, what is the bad thing that could happen? And if I'm going to take an action that I might feel that's my fault that I caused this bad thing, then I, that's, that's the thing you shouldn't do. And that's not always great advice because there are clearly areas, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you've got to, you know, failing is important. But I think actually just thinking about, would I regret it if I do this and then I lose the baby? Would I regret it? Or, you know, will I accept that they're completely different things and they, and they couldn't possibly have gone together? 
and for me that was that's this advice that worked really well for me in the context of what it where it was given but actually I do use it quite a lot more broadly was I given any at the outset because no one knew so other than medical advice that I got early on Verena I pretty much told no one I very initially told my best friend who was a nurse and she asked me a lot of questions after the very first the first time the embryos were put back, I got a lot of questions from her, which I found really hard to deal with. And that wasn't her fault. She was so supportive and, you know, so amazing because she knew what was going on. And and but what it showed me was that I couldn't deal with that, that I was not going to be able to deal with the uncertainty of people asking me questions when I didn't know whether, you know, it just generally in day-to-day life. And it comes back to that compartmentalizing things, Verena. So Having told her about the first round, and then I kind of had assumed that I would tell other people, I actually cut the whole thing dead. And, you know, well, the first round didn't work. And as far as she was concerned, I didn't do any more. I didn't tell anybody else that I was doing it ever outside of work. So only work and only my immediate team at work knew. Not family, not friends, because I just knew that I needed the space to deal with it on my own. And as much as sometimes I suspect support would have been nice, it wouldn't be fair to kind of demand that on your own terms. And and it was easier to just have it in a box and to do the IVF. And when I was doing it, we were doing it and you were engaged and I was full, pretty full on between work and doing the IVF it was a pretty busy schedule. When I wasn't doing the IVF, it was in a box and I didn't have to deal with it. And no one was asking me questions about when are you going to do the next round? Are you going to do another round? What do you think about this? It was just in a box on the shelf and I could take it off when we next went. You mentioned that at work it was very compartmentalized. Did you have to do anything to make sure it was contained to these people? I can imagine once you share it with some people, there's it's very tricky to not let it spread further if that's what you choose to do. No, I didn't do anything. I think that my most, you know, did anybody tell anybody else? Not that I, I mean, you know, maybe, yes, but not that I'm particularly aware. I'm sure that my immediate boss probably told his immediate boss. But beyond that, that would be quite a senior level conversation. And I pretty, you know, trust that they wouldn't go be telling a lot of people. And I don't think, and I think my team, you know, we were a close-knit team and I think my team respected me. May they have told one or two of the managers? Yes, I'm sure they possibly did if they were, if they asked questions, but it never came back and I never felt the need to control it. Yeah, you know, so we're, we're very supportive at a senior and organizational level. And my team were amazing in in supporting me as, as I kind of went. Mm, fantastic. They sound like a brilliant bunch of people. And this is obviously a podcast where people who are listening are passionate about career development. Did it affect your career development in any way or you were already at that level that? No, I don't think it did affect me. I was already a partner and I was already quite senior. I was running the M&A team. But actually, I would say when I came back from my second maternity leave, I actually probably got, I mean, it's always difficult in a, in a big four organization when they're quite matrixy, it's difficult to say, but I probably got, you know, I got a promotion. I probably was more highly graded actually afterwards because I just, you know, I don't know, my, I had a I had a purple patch. So maybe, maybe during the IVF, I was more impacted than I thought I was. And I felt a bit, a little bit freer afterwards, but it does certainly from a, from a EY perspective, I couldn't in any way say that it affected me negatively because it, it didn't. Not in any way, shape or form. 
And looking back at the journey now, is there anything that you would have liked to do differently? Any advice that you give your younger self? It sounds like obviously there was a really good outcome at the end with the two children. And it was a journey that you managed really well. But is there anything in hindsight that you wish you would have known? There's some things I think, I think I actually think with hindsight, the advice that we got given at the beginning, which was don't worry about doing the test, just go straight for IVF, probably wasn't helpful advice. I think, I think with hindsight, and this is, this is me slightly guessing, I think with hindsight, the first five rounds of IVF were blighted by a problem that we didn't know I had that became apparent. And I then had an operation in between. So having had five rounds, I had an operation and not not, a minor one, but a fairly important one in terms of what the mechanics was going on. They kind of took out a previously infected fallopian tube, which the IVF doctors think was probably dripping into my wound. So, and we might have found that out had we done the tests at the upfront. So, you know, but that's a, you know, everybody's cases are different. But I think for me, probably that was unfortunate that because I was already you know, and let's be really honest, I wasn't really old at this point. You know, I was 39 at this point because I was already so old. They said, let's just go straight for IVF and let's not do the test because it's going to be where we end up anyway. I think with hindsight, probably we'd have discovered that I had this gammy tube and I would have had that sorted. And I may not have gone through five rounds of IVF that were completely fruitless before then going through five that got ever increasingly more optimistic, even though it didn't work until the 10th time. So I think that, I think obviously there was a lot of heartache involved, Verena. And it's funny how life works out. Just before I had the last round of IVF in which I conceived my first child, I knew in my head that it had to be the last round because of how old I was, not because we couldn't afford it. I was incredibly lucky. And we haven't talked about that we, we might do, but the, you know, this was an expect. This is an expensive process, and I was incredibly lucky that I was able that we were able to afford to do ten rounds of IVF to have my first child. But I knew, I knew that I was already at the point in time I had her. I was coming up to be forty-four. I was like, and I and I just was measuring out ahead of me, thinking, if this doesn't take. And then it's another round. Then by the time that I'm having her, I'm even older. I'll be 60 before she's 16. And I have to think about her too. This is not a journey that is just my journey. It is not just mine and my husband's journey. It is the prospective child that we were trying to have. And I was very conscious in my head and I felt very passionately about that. And that was tough because I think... I I knew that I wasn't ready to give up in my heart, even though in my head I had rationalized it all through and thought, I know that this is what I believe and I know that this is what I think. And I actually spoke to a therapist before I did the last round of IVF, actually, and arranged to see them after that round of IVF. Because I said, look, I know that I'm going to have to go through a process of what is effectively grieving. I will have to grieve for the child that I am never going to have. And I'd already sort of set it all up. So coming back to the planning end, I'd already set it all up knowing that that was where I was going to have to be. It's funny how it works out because that was the time that it finally worked and we ended up um, with a positive outcome. You know, I think it would be nice to have known that it was going to get, you know, at some point I was going to get a positive outcome because there was an awful lot of disappointment in that three and a half, four years when I did that first 10 rounds, a hell of a lot of disappointment. Mm, I can imagine. 
and thank you for your honesty. You mentioned your age and your hopes for your children. How does the IVF uh, process impact them today in any way, would you say? They are aware that they are babies conceived through IVF. That doesn't really bother them at all. I don't, I mean, I suspect actually for my 10 year old, he barely recognizes what that means, sort of does, you know, test tube babies gets that kind of concept. But I think I do see particularly, you know, if we're watching the news and somebody's died, you know, and, and, and they're 73, I can see him doing the maths. I can see him doing the maths on what that might mean. For him, and let's be, you know, people die at sixty-eight, you know, and he'll and he'll sit on the news and he'll do the maths, and he's like, "Oh my gosh, that's only so many years away for my mum and for my dad," and that is, and that bothers me. It does bother me. It's actually, and 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 he knows that this is not, this is they know this. It's why I have two. When I was going through that whole process, and it took ten rounds, never in a million years did I imagine that I would have a number two. But I think having had the number one on what was in my head going to be the final round because I would be too old, I was then equally conscious that I am still, even though I haven't, I didn't ever get over the line of being too old in my strange world, I was still quite old. I was nearly there. And therefore, we talked about have, trying to have a number two quite quickly. And I was keen. I'm one of three. Uh, my husband's one of two. But actually, interestingly, both my parents are only children, and that's why I'm on a three. And I grew up knowing that they never wanted us to be an only child like them. Neither of them liked being only children. So I think I had this really clear thought in my head anyway that I was not so keen on having an only one. But then compounded by the fact that I was conscious that, you know, if I was going to be 60 when she was 16, I didn't want to leave her on her own. I wanted to leave her with family if I could. And actually, that was then a, that was then probably the biggest revelation of all, Verena, was the most upset I got. So I did three rounds of IVF for number two. And the most upset I got was when the first round didn't work for number two. And I was surprised because I, you know, for me, that was the bonus baby. But I think I was m- most disappointed because before I was only ever trying for me and That time, I was, well, every time I was trying for her, I wanted to have a sibling for her so that she wasn't left alone. And so when I say, well, and having made that decision, then when it wasn't working, I was really disappointed for her too. So I think, yes, it does make a difference. I think, am I too old? Well, you know, it is what it is. And I wouldn't change anything because then they wouldn't be who they are. So, you know, yes, would I love to have had children a bit earlier? Yes. But equally, then I wouldn't have the children that I have today. I have the children that I have because I had them when I had them and how I had them. And they wouldn't be the same children. You know, they'd be mm. different. And I love them dearly. So, so no, I wouldn't change it. It probably makes me quite conscious about keeping myself, you know, active, healthy, young, because I want to be here for as long as I can for them. But yes, you ask the question, does it affect them? I see it, particularly my youngest one, I see it in his face. Thank you for sharing that. And they probably wouldn't have the, the mother that they have now if it wasn't for this process. And I'm sure they're very lucky, without being cheesy, they're very lucky to have you as a mother. And clearly you love them very much. So we're coming towards the end of this. Is there anything else you wanted to share with the listeners before we wrap up? Get on with it. If you want them, get on with it. Honestly, I wouldn't wish the process I went through 
on anybody and that doesn't mean it was a, it was hideous I mean I think you've probably heard I actually just got through it and it never felt so bad actually but you know it could have been so much easier if I'd been younger and so I really always want people to if they want babies get on with it you know don't kind of go well I'll wait until I make partner or I'll wait until I make director or I've got this next big promotion coming up and then I'll be 36 and it'll be fine you know, if you want them, get on with it, get on with it and have them because you just never know what's around the corner. And until you start going through the process, you just never know how easy it's going to be or not for you. And, you know, we talked about expense. I think that's, it was hugely expensive. Had I had to rely on the national health, um, I was too old by the time we got there. I think I could have had one, but had I had to rely on the national health, I would not have children. Because, you know, one, two or three rounds did not get me there. So, you know, I think it's just worth thinking about. I feel incredibly lucky and privileged. And if someone is going through it right now, we always finish with one practical thing. And if nothing comes to mind, that's fine. But is if someone listening to this is going through it right now, would be one practical thing that takes maximum five minutes that consider doing this week to make it an okay journey for them, even if not a enjoyable one that's such a hard question Verena because I think I've probably alluded to I don't think that other people necessarily deal with it how I dealt with it so I think you have to really just think about what works for you if it's not working and it's stressful think about is there a way that I could tackle this differently because it is in your hands so obviously I made a conscious choice and actually there were two moments at which I made um, that choice. The first work we've talked about, which was having told one friend and then realized quite quickly, I'm struggling to deal with that. I'm struggling to deal with the questions coming at me and I and I don't know whether they're going to come at me. And even if they're not coming at me, I'm going to be thinking that she's thinking of asking the questions and, and it would just put this level of pressure on a relationship. And I made a very conscious decision to say, it didn't work and we're not doing any more. And it was a lie. And I know that. And I feel great about it from that perspective. But I knew it was the only way I could deal with it. And I think, so I think if it's not work, you know, if what you're currently doing doesn't work, there's always a chance to change the story. Think about how the story that you're telling or not telling works for you and how you can change it. Because you can. And, and I certainly... There was a point in time at which a family member got pregnant and I became quite conscious that I might not be dealing with it very well and I might look a bit more than a bit churlish if I wasn't careful. So at that point in time, I told my family that we had had five rounds of IVF and that they hadn't worked and that we had decided not to do any more and that if I was being a little bit difficult or I was coming across as perhaps you know not quite as nice and kind as I might come across, I was perhaps finding it harder to deal with you know, somebody else being pregnant, because I was conscious that I might be that, you know, so that was a real issue for me. But I think think about what it is that's making things hard for you. And think about is there a way in which I can control the parameters differently? Wise advice, as always. Thank you so much, Joanna, for being on the podcast. It's a pleasure. I hope this podcast has been useful to you, has given you new food for thought, and maybe some new ideas. And if you'd like to get further involved, you could do that, for example, by joining our fellowship program. It's a really awesome career development program, which is all about making sure you can fulfill your career dreams while also 
having your little ones in tow and not feeling you have to apologise for it. You can find details about it on leadersplus.org.uk. And, you know, in practical terms, you get access to inspirational role models, you'll get a personal senior leader mentor, you get support with practical challenges such as using, you know, how do you say no, managing your workload. But most importantly, it's going to give you time to think. In fact, it's going to make you think about what you want in your career and family life. And it's going to make you do that with some amazing peers who've all been carefully selected because they want to support other parents to continue to progress their careers, but also they're, you know, come from diverse backgrounds, but not to be part of a supportive community. So if you want to join and have a chat and be part of something, I guess and the podcast is real, but something realer than podcast, then please have a look on, on the platform. You can also get involved in our free events. So we have one coming up now, 11th of January, which is about returning to work after maternity, share parental adoption leave. If you are in that situation, it's free. So you can definitely check it out. If you're in that situation or you're, uh, your friends are, then please direct them there. All the details are on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash events. And thank you to everyone who's already supported me with this podcast. I've been really pleased to see how many people have shared it. If you believe that the world of podcasting should be slightly less male dominated and you think it's not okay that 70% or so of the top 10% of shows are run by male hosts, then I would be extremely grateful for your support. If you can share it with three to four friends or leave a five-star review, that would really help with the visibility and I'm super grateful for it. Thank you very much and see you next week.